You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 255 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm okay, thanks, Val. What's been happening in our world? Mm, what's been happening in our world? Yeah. Yeah, no, just the same <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm I am literally sitting here like working back through the filing cabinet of my brain just going, what have I been doing? And the response to that is, yep, I don't know writing stuff. <laughs> Fair you know enough. No, no, no. Do you know what I have been doing? Let me share this with you. I have, I've thought of something. I'm, I'm so glad mm-hmm. because that was looking like it was going to go nowhere, right? Okay. No. <laughs> so do you know what I've been doing? I've been doing mm-hmm. feedback, video feedback. Oh, well, you know, yeah. I've been doing video feedback on the, so with the children's writing quest that I do, a uh, creative writing quest that I do mm-hmm. for the Australian Writers' Centre. So one of the things is that the kids do the course and then they get video video feedback from me um, on this story. Personal video feedback. Personal video feedback. So I, you know, I read the story and I make the notes and then I sit down and I, you know, set up my banner of glory because, of course, there's no show without the banner of glory. Um, (laughs) I set up the banner of glory and and I sit myself in my sunroom and and I film myself doing doing the video responses, um, which is actually – you know, highly amusing. I, I think it would be funny to watch from the outside. Like if somebody was standing outside my sunroom looking at me doing this, I think they would probably find it quite entertaining. But um, the stories are so good. Like this is what really surprises me about it. And the, the brilliant thing about it is that um, I can see, I, I can see reading the stories where certain things that I've said to them have really resonated. So, because mm. they're about an 800 word story and the kids range in age from about nine to about, you know, 14 or so. And so I can see as I've, be, as I read through the stories where the stuff that, you know, I've said something and this kid has just grabbed hold of it. Like this particular writer has grabbed hold of it and has run with it. And I can see it in the stories that they write. So mm. it's really, um, you know, apart from the fact that I hate videoing myself, as we know, um, I really dislike it. Um, I, it. It's so it's really um, affirming to actually do the feedback and see yes. where you've said something that's really resonated or whatever. And then, you know, I give little tips about other things they've done. And um, But generally speaking, like I've read some of the most charming stories. They're so yeah, engaging. Yeah, aren't they amazing? Charming little stories that they write. Yep. And, um, you know, I can see the ones who have – you know, they've started writing this thing and it's this, you know, it needs to be 50,000 words. Like they've crammed this whole 50,000 word story down to 800 words. <laughs> and generally speaking, my feedback with those ones is, oh, you you just need to expand this. This needs to be big. You know, you need to go and do more of this, you know. And obviously I always finish with, the, you know, write more stuff because the 
more you do it, the better you get at it and whatever. Um, but I have to share with you that one of the best things that I have invested in when it comes to actually doing this is my little, I've got one of those little gorilla pod tripods. Oh, yeah. Mm. So good. It's changed so my good. life. So there's no, sh- they're not getting shaky cam anymore. Yes. They're not getting you know, sort of like the horror movie version of the feedback. It's all very a professional. Horror movie. Yeah, you know how with horror movies there was that real thing where they had the shaky cam. Oh, yeah, cam like the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. It's, so mm-hmm. it's not that because that, everything I've ever done up until this point um, has kind of had that vibe about it. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, well, Book Boy won't even let me video his, um, his little, like, I'll sometimes take video footage of him practicing in the garage or something to yeah. put up on his Facebook page. And he's like, let's get the tripod out, mum. They don't yeah. need the horror movie version of this. No. <laughs> Apparently, oh I have shaky God. cam figures. Well, it so. is nothing like a horror movie version in fact I've seen the videos and the feedback is incredible it's wonderful that kids get to write this story so Al guides them through how to write an actual story and then they write the story and submit it and Al actually reads the story and provides feedback directly to the kid on their specific story via video and it's so encouraging if I was a kid you know it's just so encouraging and so inspirational to get feedback directly from an author um it's fantastic and and if you are interested in finding out more go to writerscenter.com.au slash quest that's writerscenter.com.au slash quest to find out more about Alison's creative writing quest for kids so there you go. No shaky cam. No shaky no cam. Shaky it's all cam. awesome stuff. Not at Fantastic. all. What about you? What are you doing? Are you doing anything with shaky cam this week? I'm not doing anything with shaky cam. I am going to get a pedicure because you know. <laughs> are you serious? Are you actually? Yeah. Is this actually? Are you bringing this up as a highlight of your week? <laughs> it is a highlight of my week. See, now I've got your toenails <laughs> in my mind, and that's just oh. not something we ever need to think about. Beth. Sorry, but they're quite nice looking. They're okay. Well, I'm sure they're stunning, but. Really. <laughs> Because now that the rain has finally stopped, we're actually finally getting into a proper spring and soon summer, it's now time for open-toed shoes, the important thing, right? And so you got to address this super, super important issue. I know. I'm, okay. I'm all about the important stuff. I'm quite sure we're going to go with this. Is that well, it? Is in, that the whole ha- conversation? That's, or is that's it. We're going to move right. straight on into the world of writing and publishing. I think that that would be a clever idea, wouldn't you? I think so right now. Because, no, the that. reason why, the reason why is because um, – I, you know, speak at public events and when I speak at public events and it's winter and it's all closed-toed shoes, I just don't care. (laughs) But now I actually have to think of these things. So I understand that. that. Yeah, and that segues. Ballet flats were invented. You know that. Oh, no, I don't do ballet flats. No, no, no. I can't. I just can't. Why? I can't actually. <laughs> I can't actually walk in them properly. They always slip out. I've tried all kinds, and the flatness of it just doesn't work for me. I know. Seriously. I know. Anyway, so that moves on to this week's topic. Actually, speaking of speaking in public, and this is about how to do author readings that actually work. Because you know, you and I have been to many an author reading. And sometimes it works really well and sometimes it's just so boring. <laughs> yeah. And you sit there and go, oh, my God. Yeah. 
So, yeah, what do you think makes a good author reading and one you know, that doesn't Do you know, I have to say that author readings, they, they actually um, kind of strike fear into my heart a little bit. Why? Author, well, author talks are a completely different thing to me than yeah. an author reading. So an author reading, I always get this idea that it's going to be, you know, some person sitting there reading them out loud from their book for 40 minutes. Mm. Um, now, I, I remember when I had to go and do my first – um, my first author specific author reading. All right, so this was actually like it was it was it was at a it was at a festival. I've only ever done one actual reading, and it was at a festival. And they said to me, "You will have half an hour to do this mm. author reading." And I was like, "What? Like I'm not mm. going to read my book for half an hour? Like that's insane! Why? Who is going to sit there and listen to me read my book for half an hour?" Mm-hmm. And I actually had to do a little bit of research as to what was actually involved in an author reading as opposed mm-hmm. to an author talk. I had to actually like do some Googling because it was it was all a little bit foreign to me, I have to say. Yes. So what do you think makes a good one and a not good one? Okay. So I think that the, what makes a good one is an engaging conversation in which you read some of your book. So I think that what makes a good one is some conversation about, you know, where the idea for the book came from, you know, some some sort of snippets about your writing life. So basically for me it's a truncated author talk and then, you know, reading aloud from your book. And I think the most important thing to do is to remember, and this is, you know, like there's a, a terrific post in writersdigest.com which is about, you know, tips for making readings that work for you and your listeners. And it, I have to say that the first one is the probably the most important one to remember is that the audience is actually there to be entertained. Like they're yes. there, they're not just there to kind of listen to you drone on endlessly about mm. yourself, uh, sort of, or, or to read. I remember someone telling me recently at an event that I was at that, um, and it was an organizer of one of the events I was at, was saying that that an author had come had come you know t- to do a a, a festival. And they had got up on stage and they had read, read from their book for 45 minutes. That mm. that was what they did. They read mm. from their book for 45 minutes to a room full of about 500 kids, which is just, oh I can't God. even imagine what that, how that went. But anyway, um, oh. you have to remember that the audience is there to be entertained. So to me, uh, you know, and this is how I tend to approach my readings now, you know, I talk about, as I said, I do a truncated version of, of, of an author talk. So I talk about where the ideas for the inspiration for the books came from. I talk about, you know, where I started, the starting point for writing them. I wave my arms around an awful lot because that's pretty much what I do whenever I speak. Every single photo that has been taken of me recently at a festival, I look like I'm waving an aircraft in. Like it's honestly <laughs> it's ridiculous. I do. I've got so many hands going in all directions. Um, so, you know, it's about that. And then, of course, you choose you choose you obviously going to read because it's an author reading. So mm. you choose short scenes, like you're better off doing two or three short scenes mm. um, that are engaging and entertaining and relevant than doing the whole first chapter of your book or something like that. I, so on the internet, on the internet, there is a YouTube video of me reading out loud the first chapter from the Adaban cipher. So from the, from the book of secrets, book one of the Adaban cipher, there is a, there is actually a, a, a vision of me doing this. And I was asked to do it by a and I'm in their offices. Now 
when I had to do that, it was without, I didn't realize I was doing it. So it was without um, any sort of, you know, notice or whatever. So mm-hmm. I am reading Cole this, this, uh, the first, it takes 18 minutes for me to read the first chapter of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's of course, incredibly entertaining because, you know, it's, it's me reading to you. So please go listen to it. But if I was to get up on stage and I was to do a half hour reading session and all I did was read the first two chapters of that book, mm. people would get up and leave because yeah. it is incredibly dull to do that. You know, you have to think about doing some short pieces and maybe you yeah. then discuss discuss the character or discuss what just happened and then you move on to a different scene. So, and and try not to have too many characters going on all at once oh, in yeah, the scenes you choose. Yeah, it gets really, really confusing. So mm. I think that those are the kinds of things you need to think about when you want to create a, a reading. You, you you have to think about the fact that what you're there to do and you want to in- entertain and engage people so much that mm. they cannot help but rush out and buy your book because that's really mm. what you're there for. But you have to think about them first and then you. And I think that's really, really important. I think also that is the best advice, Al, about think of shorter scenes or, you know, shorter things that you can then read and then discuss, then read the next short bit and discuss, and then read the next short bit and discuss. And the thing is that you may find that that discussion period, depending on whether you have interactivity with the audience or whatever, may go for, you know, a short time or may go for a long time. But the beauty about having it in segments in that way is that if you go a little bit longer, you can just not read that that final snippet you know yeah. what I mean, based yeah. on how much time you've got left and you can adjust what you've chosen to read based on um, what time you've got left because the other um, – what time you've got left because the other tip, one of the other tips which I think is very, very important in this post, which is in Writer's Digest and we'll put the link in the show notes, is to honour time limits. Yes. This is so important. Yes. I cannot tell you the number of author readings I've gone to where the author – they've obviously chosen a – a a piece out of their book that has gone longer than they anticipated and they feel the need to get to the end of that chapter or the end of that section because they feel that they'll disappoint the listeners, which is, which is potentially true, but you are also disrespecting the readers. If, I mean, the listeners, if you go way over time. So it's just, it's just something that is just good manners as this uh, post says. And I remember going to a, um, uh, a session once where this guy, so, you know, this was a while back before I, I was, you know, in my current relationship, um, uh, where this guy was talking and I thought he was really, you know, the, like the thing, right? You know, right. I liked him. Hot. And hot. You um, thought he was hot. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just really, really, really liked him. And oh, listen to you. You're he like was 15. <laughs> he was talking, right? And it was meant to go for, say, 50 minutes. That's fine. And, um, you know, if you go for an hour, if, if you're meant to go 15 minutes, that's okay. Anyway, an hour and 45 <gasps> minutes later, and he was still talking, and I just he was no longer appealing to me after being appealing to me for a long time. He was just no longer appealing to me. Did he get all. gonged off though? Like generally he speaking, got so many hints. Even the organizers was kind of saying like, yeah, it was all, 
was was d- doing lots of hints basically, but he was kind of in the middle of this thing. And uh, yeah, an hour and forty five minutes. No, and that's I, not on. See, normally organisers all... start throwing things at you at about that. Yeah. You know, once you've gone sort of ten or fifteen minutes over. But I, yeah. the, but you know the other thing is too, like you said, you know, people are reading something and it goes a bit longer than they expected. It shouldn't go longer than you expect because you should have practiced it. Like you should read that thing out loud. You should time exactly how long it goes for so you know where it's going to fit and you should have a phone or or at least a clock within, like I don't even rely on someone winding me up at 10 minutes. Like I have my phone next to me so I can keep an eye on the time or I make sure there's a clock that I can see, you know, within so I know where I'm up to And because I always like to leave um, time for questions. No matter where I am, there is someone who is going to want to ask a question. So I like to leave time for that because it leaves people with a very lovely um, feeling about you if you've taken the time to answer their questions. It's a really good thing to do. So make yeah. sure you've got that. But also practice reading your piece out loud because mm. you you need to, you've got to kind of perform it. Like you're having to, you're going to have to deliver that thing. Whether you're, you're reading a scene that's three paragraphs long or whether you're reading, you know, four pages or whatever it is you're reading, you have to deliver it. Like this is you mm. doing your stuff. This is you selling your work, okay? Like I'm sorry, it does it, this is actually what it is. This is you selling your work. And the best way to do that is to practice reading it so that you are delivering it in an engaging way. So if you watch me do the first chapter of the Adaban Cipher Book of Secrets, on the internet and please do like it's it, it's entertaining just to watch me try to kind of get through it without falling over myself um because I was well I was reading it cold as I said I didn't know I was going to do it so mm. I was I was reading the whole thing you know and and the, the thing that saved me in that particular instance was the fact that I am so used to reading out loud to my kids I have had years and years and years yeah. of practice. So I am so used to reading out loud, out loud to my kids. I was able to keep the expression up and all that sort of stuff. What I had to remember to do occasionally was to look up because that's the other thing. Yeah. When you're reading, you are, as an author at a reading, you are delivering it. You have to remember to look up at your audience occasionally. You can't mm-hmm. just bury your head in a book and disappear. So these are all things to practice, 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 but time it have an understanding of exactly how long it is going to take you to get through those four minutes or whatever and probably slow down. Like if you're anything like me, you tend to read too quickly. I'd gallop. So you might need to actually, you know, take some notes. Mark in your book where you want to do some pausing. Pauses help to kind of just keep people with you. So, you know, anyway. Well, for clearly sure. we could talk about this for days. Yeah, we could talk about this all day. So, in fact, we might uh, – we had some move other on. links planned, but we might um, move on instead. Um, so, our competition this week, we have 10 double passes to Beautiful Boy. So, Beautiful Boy is a deeply moving portrait of a family's unwavering love and commitment to each other in the face of their son's addiction and his attempts at recovery, based on two memoirs, one from acclaimed journalist David Sheff and one from his son, Nick Sheff. As Nick repeatedly relapses, the chefs are placed are faced with the harsh reality that addiction is a disease that does not discriminate and can hit any family at any time, stars uh, Steve Carell. And um, we have 10 double passes to for you to win. If you want to win, then entries close on the 29th of October. Just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. So, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? I'm so, so, so ready, Val. So ready. Okay. So, it's 
kind of related to last week's word of the week, which you might remember, of course, as panegyric. Um, of course. This- yes, that was absolutely in my memory <laughs> banks forevermore. Yep. This is encomium. Oh, I'm not saying that right. Encomium. Encomium. That's E-N-C-O-M-I-U-M. Encomium. It sounds like a weird version of the economy, but it's not. It means to offer a formal expression of praise. So you might say the school captain offered an encomium when the principal retired. Because you would, wouldn't you, Al? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, It's a hard one to say, encomium. (laughs) I just don't even know where to go with that. All right, moving right along then to our writer-in-residence this week. Who have we got, Al? I don't know. Who have we got? Oh, we do. I do know who we've got. We've got the fabulous John Purcell. Now, Regular listeners will remember, of course, because, you know, you remember everything. everything. Like I remember the word of the week from last week. <laughs> um, about 100,000 episodes ago, 250-odd episodes ago, we <laughs> spoke to John Purcell, who is the head of books at Booktopia. Now, yes. when we talked to him back in episode five, we were discussing um, – the fact that he had recently sort of come out as the uh, person behind the pseudonym Natasha Walker. And Mm -hmm. Natasha Walker had written three um, incredibly well-selling erotic novels um, Mm -hmm. called The Secret Lives of Emma. And we had a bit of a chat with John and we talked, um, it was very, if you haven't listened to that particular episode, it's really worth having a listen to because of the insight that uh, John gave us about how books are sold into booksellers because, of course, he was in the very interesting position of no one knowing that he was Natasha Walker Mm. and being the head book buyer at Booktopia, he was having his own publishing rep come to Booktopia to sell Natasha Walker's books in to Booktopia. So he was able to see exactly, yeah, exactly where his books were positioned and how they were positioned. So it's a really great interview to listen to if you haven't. Now, John has just recently released his what what we probably will now refer to as his first novel um, mm-hmm. under his own name. And mm-hmm. so we had a big chat about the differences, you know, of, you know, being yourself on the cover of your book as opposed to being a pseudonym and, you know, how being so immersed in the market affects your writing when you are an mm-hmm. author. So really good interview. Have a listen. Way back in episode five, we spoke to John Purcell, a.k.a. the book guru, chief book buyer and head of marketing at Booktopia, who was writing novels under the name Natasha Walker. These days, John Purcell is the director of books at Booktopia, and he has come out from behind his alter ego to release his first novel, The Girl on the Page, with HarperCollins, which he admits brings together everything he's learned about books and publishing, so well worth a read. Welcome to the program, John. Thank you for having me. It's been a while. It has. I know, but really. It's been a while on the podcast, but, of course, we do run into each other frequently. Well, semi-regularly, which is, you know, fun, isn't it? I guess that's the, one of the things about your job. You spend an awful lot of time with authors, right? That's the great benefit of my job. That's the, that's the, that's the bonus of my job, yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, we're going to start with your writing, and then we might get it a bit into sort of like the everything you've learned about books and publishing later in the program. Um, given it's been 250 
or so episodes since we last spoke. Perhaps you could remind us how your first book, written as Natasha Walker, came to be published. Well, way back then, um, I was trying to get a historical novel that I'd written published, and I, I'd been lucky enough to get an agent. And so the agent was busily out there trying to sell my book, but having absolutely no luck. And she was getting to the end of the sort of the list of publishers that she had on her on her um, target zone and asked me if, if I had anything else that I was working on or I had anything else that um, that, that she could look at. And I, I did, but I wasn't really that eager to show her. And I, I said, look, I've got this. I've got this other manuscript that I wrote quite a while ago. It's it's filthy. It's an absolutely filthy manuscript, um, and it's it's big. Uh, it, it goes nowhere. It's it's, it's just naughty. Um, and she said, "Look, I'll, I'll take a look. Doesn't sound that great, but I'll take a look." And she read it from cover to cover, uh, and 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 we got back to me and said, "It's absolutely filthy. I don't know why you're not in jail. Uh, it's 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 disgusting. No one's going to publish this, John. Um, well, thanks for letting me read it because I really enjoyed it, but no one's going to publish this." Um, uh, and then about a day later after that, after that exchange, um, David Maher wrote a piece about a book called, um, the 50 shades of gray that, uh, random house. Yeah. Had just, just paid a million dollars or something for, um, and it had been a self published book or, or a small publisher had published it and it was going gangbusters. And so random house has stepped in and bought and bought the rights to it. And so there was a, a big noise, and, and, and on the front of the Herald was this article by David Ma. Anyway, so my agent had this big pile of filthy pages um, in her hand, and the new front of the newspaper was saying that erotica, erotic fiction was the new big thing. And so she ran off to all the publishers, and she got a couple of offers and took the random house offer um, straight away. And it was, it was in days. It was, it was like March of 2012. Um, I, was still, I was just being promoted to Booktopia, so I was in the busiest period of my career thus far, and I'm having to leave and talk to her over the phone about these offers that were coming in for this. It was a it was a terrible manuscript, you know. It wasn't it wasn't in great shape, and it was just utterly filthy. But it was just it was just that moment. It was a lucky moment for me, and and we quickly signed this ebook only deal with with Random House um, because they were they didn't know what was going on. No one knew what was going on. It was before. Fifty Shades had really taken hold. It was still just an industry buzz thing. Um, but then the orders started coming through for Fifty Shades and um, the print runs started to get bigger and bigger for Fifty Shades. And so um, Random House started to get an understanding of just how big this thing might be. And it went worldwide, of course. Mm. Everyone knows about the Fifty Shades thing. Um, and so suddenly erotic fiction was the hottest property and um, all publishers were signing up um, new writers or digging out old writers from their from their um, backlists and republishing them onto the market. Um, and mine was was one of these, uh, and it was all done so quickly. It was March when I got signed up, and I think July when it went into into the shops. So um, this massive yes, massive pile of papers which had no real story. Uh, I worked very closely with Beverly at um, Random House. And we, we found a story within the pages and we, we knocked it out. And then we, um, we saw that there could be a second book out of it, um, cause it was such a big manuscript. And so we, um, uh, you know, they signed me up for another book because it was just going nuts and they wanted to get it out as fast as possible. So even before I'd really finished editing the first book, I was, I was told to start working with the manuscript to get a second book going. Wow. Um, 
yeah, and at the same time, they, they sort of questioned me about whether or not I wanted to go under my own name, and I was very um, reluctant to go under my own name, largely because I had small kids and it was porn, and uh, the world hadn't changed yet. It was still the, the pre Fifty Shades world, um, and everyone was still as, as conservative um, as they now returned to be. And it was, it was frightening. So, and they suggested I write under a woman's name. So, um, I took their suggestion and we came up with the most boring name we could find so that the title stood out and not the, not the name it wasn't going to be, um, Pussy Galore or something stupid. Um, so I just, I just chose a normal name, Natasha Walker, and we, we, we ran with it. And no one in the industry knew it was me. Um, and it was, the secret was very well kept. There were a couple of small leaks, but no one believed it, which was good. Um, <laughs> And, and and it went and it became a bestseller. It was just wow. it was a it was a crazy way to get published. That is extraordinary. What what do you think you learnt from? Because you wrote three. It was it, it was the Secret Lies of Emma became a trilogy. What do you think you learnt from writing that, particularly in that with that methodology? Like you've got this pile of papers of filth, as you say, and then you have to work to create three actual you know, manuscripts, actual stories out of this thing. What do you think the process of that taught you as, a, as an author, as a writer? It was the best experience as a writer I've had. It was kill your darlings time. So I was hopeless. I was absolutely hopeless with uh, being so precious about manuscripts and about the paragraphs and about the sentences I loved and about the characters and the plot that I just was hopeless. I, my editing process, which I thought was, was brilliant and stringent, was non-existent. I, I learned through that process. So being able to work with Beverly Cousins was brilliant. She's a, she's a, um, she was the, um, uh, editor and publisher of Ka uh, Carolyn Overton, um, and a, and a lot of other of the, of the really commercial, um, hits of Random House in the day. And she was brutal and she was very clear about her directions and made so much sense. So, I mean, I had a crash course in writing, in publishing and editing in those first two books to the point where when they said we need a third book and I said to them, there is no third book. There's no manuscript left. We used it all up. Um, and they said, look, you got to knock one out. You got to write one. Um, that I wrote it. Uh, I wrote it with all the things that I'd learned from, from, um, working with Beverly and working with the manuscript. Uh, so I had a crash course six month um, sort of lesson in, in turning things around. Um, to the point where I was comfortable enough with, with writing a, a whole, you know, 50,000 plus novel, um, on, on, uh, over, over the Christmas holidays, largely. It was, it was really smashed out. Wow. And, and, and uh, so I, uh, that, that was, you know, you can't buy that. <laughs> that was working with one of the best editors and learning the trade on the, on the job, um, and an apprenticeship, um, that really worked well for me and, and, uh, so many, so many little tips in there. But largely, it was get over yourself. <laughs> get really over is, yourself. It? It's all about yeah. getting over yourself. It really is. Yeah. Um, so speaking of getting over yourself, last time we spoke, which was about 2014, I think, from memory, um, you were you were coming out, like you'd come out as Natasha Walker because we discussed the whole process of that, you know, in the sense of, you know, you were happy to admit that that's who you were. So what, what had happened in the interim that made you happy to say, yes, I am John Purcell and I also write as Natasha Walker? What was the change? Well, there was one big thing. I've been wanting me to write her since I was about 18 and I was a writer and no one knew. It drove me insane. Right. Um, I was, I, I was um, the third highest selling debut author of that and in 2012. Wow. I, I was um, the 10th highest selling Australian novelist of that year. 
Um, and I couldn't tell a, a soul. It was one of the hardest things to keep because I, I, I've been boring everyone with my desire to be a published author. And so I'd gone quiet <laughs> with my moans. Um, and, and, I, and, and it had happened. It, my mother couldn't tell her reading group friends. Oh, no. you know, there's, oh, there's a whole lot of pressures. There's a whole lot of pressures involved. Um, and it was just, I was just bursting with pride, you know, that this had happened and, and that I had been involved and I'd done this thing. Um, so when, when book three came out and it had its month in the sun and was starting to stop selling in the, at the same sort of rate and, and the 50 shades thing was starting to decline. Um, and the, the market was sort of slowing down. I could see that the end of the end of the run was, was coming. It was, it was, you know, I know how books work and I know how they have their moment and then they go away. And so I thought there was really nothing to lose by, um, coming out and getting a bit more publicity around it. And giving the books another lease of life. Mm-hmm. See, very strategic. Look at you go. Um, okay, so now you're releasing your first novel under your own name. Yeah, this is this has been um, yeah, a long a long waited um, uh, event, and I'm so excited. I'm doing all the author things. I couldn't do it before because I'd have to dress up in drag. <laughs> Which would have been quite a spectacular look on you, I would imagine. It would have been enormous. I mean, me in high heels would be just just frightening. You would be so tall. Um, So tall. Does it feel like you're releasing your first novel? Like, is that what it feels like to you? Like, even though this is actually your your fourth book, does it feel like you're releasing your first novel? It does in so many ways. The way people are talking to me about it, um, and of course to them it is. For a lot of people it actually is the first novel. They're not really connecting the two things. Mm. Um, uh, but also the fact that I can do those visits to bookshops, which I've never done before, um, meet the booksellers, um, and also just the way freedom on social media that I can do. Uh, and because no one's heard the name before, they're treating me on there as a, as a new author. So, yes, it definitely does. Um, the only thing, I'm, I'm just a bit more jaded than your, your general debut author. One of the funniest meetings um, that I had was um, was when, when this – because this book went into a sort of an auction between different publishers. And so you, you, as an author, you go to the publishing house and they, they uh, tell you all these wonderful things they're going to do for you if you choose them to, to publish. Um, the problem is that they're normally dealing with people who have never been involved in the industry. Uh, they're new to it. They don't know what's going on. And then they find themselves sitting across from me. Mm. And they all know. I knew everyone at the table. Mm. <laughs> um, and so it was very... It's very awkward. Both the both the meetings that I went to for this um, uh, that went forward uh, were were kind of embarrassing because I knew all the tricks, I knew all the things that they were going to tell me before they said it, and they were, they were kind of deflated. They're like, "We can't tell you these things because you know it all." <laughs> so that 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 part in in the actual first signing up was was very different to I think a debut author would expect. So just out of interest with that, let's imagine for a second that I am a debut author and I go to, I'm in this situation, I've got two publishing houses that are vying for my attention. What, what should I be looking for? Like you're, you're the man, you know, what should I be listening out for? Like what, you know, let's imagine we've got smoke and mirrors and all sorts of things going on. What are the, maybe the key things that I should be listening to in the pitch for what, for why they want my book? Uh, one big thing is when they're going to put the book out. And so that gives you a great indication of, of, of how big they think the book will be. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you're getting pushed out in Christmas, they think that it's, it's, it's going to be out of play with the big guys. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you're, um, if you're being pulled into uh, January or February, they're hoping for a slow burn. There's a whole, a whole sort of range of, of 
of meanings behind where, you, where they plonk you. Okay. Um, that's one thing. There's, there's also um, the marketing. You know, if they're upfront and they're committed to doing particular kinds of marketing strategies, then you also know how their approach will be. So okay. if they're doing, if they're promising, if you're, if you're one of the, the lucky few that get the, uh, the bells and whistles um, and you're in that position and you've got two big players after you and they're offering lots of money, um, then it's time to look down the, the, um, the, you know, what they're promising with marketing. And you really examine, is it a big bus thing? Is it, are they going to rely on grassroots marketing? Are they going to go out? Are they going to have dinners with booksellers? Are they, you know, yeah. on the other hand, if you're, if you're just, you're just getting published, like they're, they're just taking a bit of a shot with you and they're, um, they're, you know that you're not going to be the next, um, uh, 50 shades, say, mm-hmm. um, but you're going to be someone that they look after, like Leanne Moriarty was looked after by Paramount for years before this enormous success hit it. Yeah. Um, then you look at the, the small things. You know, what sort of commitment have they got to you? Have they signed you up for two books? Are they are they thinking about uh, a long term strategy? Are they are they really going to back you as an author, as a person, as a brand? They're going to build. Mm. Um, those things are, are, are kind of really uh, important to look out for in the in those early in those early bits. Okay, so speaking of brand, why did you decide to do this one as John Purcell and not build on the readership that you had with Natasha Walker? Was it because they were just too different? They were too different. Um, uh, I, I felt that, um, uh, and there, uh, definitely there is a stigma to having written um, erotic fiction. Publishers like to put you in boxes. Yeah. Um, and so do booksellers. They want to be able to say to the person, this is just like the last one. Right. Um, it makes it easier to sell. So if I'd put that on there, there'd be more focus probably on the sexual side of the book. Um, uh, and it may have been put in, in a different spot in the bookshop to align with the past. Um, and I thought it was a very different book. Um, it was going for a different audience. Yeah. Um, so I, I decided to go under my own name. Okay. All right. So tell us about the book. What can I expect from the girl on the page? Well, what I'm finding is that there are, are, are more books than I thought in the in the book because the reactions from um, from a whole lot of younger readers is that it's a book about Amy Wy- uh, Amy uh, Winston who is um, was inspired by Amy Winehouse. So this this girl who who uh, has a uh, has a big love and she screws it up by um, by uh, by deceitful behaviour and and loses this great love. Um, and, but in her professional life, she is. Brilliant. She's doing really well. She's an editor. She's helping. She helped a um, uh, you know a dodgy crime writer, thriller writer, become uh, a best-selling lead child kind of writer, and she's made a fortune doing it. But she still likes to to do her editing um, work. Uh, but in her private life, it's a complete mess, and she's on a sort of a down, downward spiral. They see that story. The younger people see that story, and Amy goes right through the book, um, and they think of it as an Amy story. The older readers are seeing it as a Helen and Malcolm story. Helen, Helen and Malcolm are these literary greats who are in their um, late seventies, who are sort of like uh, A.S. Byatt and um, I don't know John Banfield being married, um, or Julian Barnes being married, and they've got all the credit in the world, but they have never made the big bucks. They've right. got they've, they've got great reviews. They're literary. Um, they're constantly talked about as icons and the like, and they're up for things like the Booker and, and Nobel Prize, but they never actually made any money out of it. Mm. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of the older ones are looking at that and, they, and the story around that relationship 
and don't really like the Amy side of things and they don't really see the Amy side of things um, as much. So I'm sort of getting these these two books coming back at me. Um, uh, there's also uh, people who don't have much sex uh, or haven't had great, great sex in their life. All they ever want to do is talk about the sex in it. And I don't think there's much sex in this book compared to the other books I've written. <laughs> so, All right, we're going to talk, so talk about that in a moment. But I want to ask you first about – I saw in a blog post that you wrote for the Booktopia blog that you felt like this book fell on the page, like that it sort of just came out fully formed. So what was the process for writing it? Like where did you first, you know, get that spark of an idea and then how did the process go? Like do you plan your stuff or do you just sort of write as you, you know, as it comes out? I have a I have a tiny little plan, and I don't normally hit the marks in the plan. I change things as I go along. But what uh, you know, the the historical novel that was uh, at the beginning of the story, where I was mm-hmm. trying to get it published. Um, after I published um, Secret Lives of Emma, I returned to my historical novel just to drive myself mad, uh, and then worked and reworked it over four or five years, um, not publishing anything else, not getting anything else finished, um, to the point where I actually got Catherine. Milne from HarperCollins to take it to acquisitions, um, uh, but she couldn't get it through. And then Penguin were interested in it, but I, I, um, I sort of lost faith in, in the book at that point. Um, and so I put it in a drawer. And thank God I did because there had been a massive stop on my imagination and my creativity. So I went through it in a drawer. And a character that I've been thinking about for years, Amy, um, I, never had a, I never had a plot for her, never had a story for her. I just had this character. And these two older um, characters, Helen and Malcolm, have been sitting in the uh, in the waiting room of my imagination for years as well. They met, uh, they met in my imagination, and a story just boomed, it just bang, and it just came. And so I jotted down as fast as I could this story, and it was a, probably a two pager where I just sort of knocked it down. And then I couldn't stop writing about my characters. So I've got I've got these documents, which you know there are two pages on Amy about her past. There are two pages on. Um, Helen and Malcolm and then Max comes into it and then Liam's into it and I started building these little characters um, and, and I showed I showed Catherine from um, from HarperCollins and she said what are you wasting time on this historical thing this is where your story is this is this is, this is you you've got to put this down and so with that encouragement I I um I spent the next um, so that was January 2017 and every weekend from that point until July I I found time on the weekend to write. And I wrote this novel on weekends um, between that that period, so between January and July. Mm. But it all came so fast; it all came flooding out. That's why I said it sort of came fully formed. It mm. just felt like it. It felt like it wrote itself in in, in so many ways. Um, the the drama of it, the questions that it raises. Um, it just seemed I had a lot of I had a lot of questions, and these characters had a lot of of opinions about the answers to those questions, and so the pages were filled up. Fantastic. Now, it's been described as a literary page turner, which is just, you know, pretty much what you want. Um, but you also haven't quite left Natasha Walker behind because, as we discussed, there's, you know, there's a bit of sex going on. As Dervla Tinan says, there's quite a bit of sex. Um, <laughs> so, so this book is not erotica, but did you have a sense of having to find a line of how much sex is too much sex for this particular book or was it more of a natural thing of this is what I'm writing and so this is what's appropriate or whatever? It's, I don't know. There's a kind of rebellious part of me, which which I don't like the oughts and the and you better do this and you and you shouldn't have that much of that. Um, that that kept me keeping this much sex in the book. I mean, when you look at the book as a whole, it's a small proportion, and the pages and the sex scenes are quite short. When you consider that 
in the first book of Secret Lives of Emma, a sex scene with 100 pages. Um, these, these sex scenes are two pages long at max. Um, oh, so you think there's not much sex in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 if you're not living in this way and, and your life isn't filled with sex, then it may seem like a lot of sex in, in it. Um, but, you know, Amy is a very sexual person and mm. that's, and I mean, there are people out there who just say she, she wouldn't exist, there's no one like her um, that, that has a sex life like that. It's just garbage. People have sex lives like that all the time. People are already telling me, isn't it wonderful to have a character like this who represents me? You know, so... <laughs> Um, so it's all the people who aren't who say that people don't. Is that right? I believe, I believe so. It must be. I mean, I can't because people are people are being naughty everywhere around you. You just don't know what's happening. You're not engaged mm-hmm. in it, and there's right. naughty stuff going on everywhere. Um, and so, yeah. So I I felt that it was important for her character to have this and to have it depicted because um, it's what it kind of describes who she is and how she thinks about things. And also, it's it's her refuge in this time of trouble for her. Yeah. Um, and and in in one in certain cases it's 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 a whipping uh, she whips herself with it you know it's not it's not all it's not all great um, uh, the, her, her sex life and and some of her choices are just idiotic and mm. stupid mm. Um, and and self defeating uh, but I needed to have her be that complicated I needed her to have that um, thing and you know the, 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 my oldies they do reference their earlier life and and you know they're writers and and. If you're doing it right, you're having lots of sex as a writer, and you're having passionate arguments, and you're you're involved in this world, and you want more out of it. You want to squeeze more out of it. And Helen and Malcolm are in their their late seventies when we meet them. Um, It doesn't mean that they they were like the way they're behaving as seven year olds the whole way through their life. Mm. I I sort of wanted to kind of it's not very explicit in it, but I just wanted to make sure that people felt that that these guys were um, you know were not completely um, ignorant of, of that other side of life. Okay, so let's talk about the girl in the title, which is kind of like a publishing thing that we've seen a lot of in the last year. We've had, you know, um, the girl on the train and the girl in the window and the girl doing all of the various things. Um, and it's also, I believe, within the title of the book, within the book, is that correct, that there's a girl in there as well? Is that is that like an inside joke for you, John? Is that just you referencing the publishing industry with the girls all over the place? I, the, the title was a joke title um, <laughs> that I had on my manuscript. Uh <laughs> And I did not think they were going to go with it. I mean, there's a joke within there's a joke within the book yeah. um, where they discuss all the different girl titles yeah. um, because uh, she refers to one of her uh, uh, the manuscript she's writing with Liam as uh, girl on girl, yeah. just a, as a joke about all the girl titles. Yeah. And then and then they sort of list all the girl titles in the conversation. So I do, I do make reference to the fact that this is just another girl book with the girl on the page, but I just didn't think they were going to run with it. But the, but it makes a lot of sense because it is, you know, this book is a, sort of a, a satire of publishing um, in, in, in some aspects of it. So why not um, poke fun at it? Um, yeah, I mean, they do reference that every single girl book is about a woman. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right, so you are... You know, you're incredibly well known in the Australian publishing industry. If you know people are involved in the industry on any level, they have probably come across you at some point. Do you think that in this case of you know, like putting out your first book under your own name and stuff, is it a help or a hindrance? Does it I come with some sort of? I was going to say, does it come with some anxiety for you? Yeah, there's, there's anxiety. There's, it's a bit of a hindrance because I'm also associated with Booktopia, yeah, uh, which is a bookshop, and that's um, a big bookshop, and it's Australia wide. Um, uh, so there's an association there with, um, 
with anxieties amongst other bookshops or um, competition and that sort of side of things. Um, but there's also, um, being so well-known, there's no story in the mind of the publishers around me. They know me back to front and they know, they believe, because of the, um, the way in which I deal with them through the shop and through uh, our publisher events and the like, uh, they get to see a certain a certain version of me day in day out, mm. um, and that may may not be interesting to them because of the confines of our circumstance we find ourselves in, um, and also business means you have to be boring in many ways. Um, and so I think that, that yeah, and and that and that um, and that might sort of make them go as if that boring guy could write a book that's interesting, you know. Um, so there's that side of it as well. Yeah. Um, and publishing at the moment, the debut story um, is so important. I mean, so many so many debuts when they go to write their second novel find it very difficult because for a lot of people in the media and like, there's no story about a second second novel. But there's a great story about a debut novelist coming from nowhere and selling copies. You know, there's a and so there's an endless sort of um, uh, line of of debuts coming and being sacrificed to the market, and then when they come around for the second time, then no one's interested in them. So uh, I'm, I, I felt like I was a bit like that in the in the not interesting um, end of things because I, uh, even though I was a, a debut under this name, I wasn't really a debut under the other name, and I was so well known that it was a bit blah. Yeah, there's John. He's, uh, yeah, he's he can write, but you know, is there? So I was really worried about that that aspect of it. But thankfully, the the book talk to them and I didn't have to. I was going to say, so, you know, like what if you're in that situation, what do you do to overcome it? And that's obviously you just write a great book that talks to them so you don't have to. Is that what, is that how Yeah, and, 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 and keeping an eye on, when, I, when if you'd spoken to me as second-hand book dealer, John, um, I would have never spoken to you about marketing or keeping an eye on the market or, or trying to work out how readers interested in turning pages and all those sort of things, I would have vomited. So one of the things that uh, I learned from doing this job was, because I get to interview, just like you do, I get to interview all the uh, commercial writers, the most successful writers in Australia, and they all have different approaches to fiction and to keeping people on the page. Um, and you know, so when I'm thinking about um, constructing a novel, I'm now I've now got all their voices in my head and about about certain techniques on how to do that. And because my novel was a discussion about commercial versus literary and about uh, about that divide within the within the publishing world, I thought it would be interesting to, to use the commercial model to talk about literature. So uh, so I made a very open door, a big, wide open door um, to my novel uh, to allow everyone in. Uh, so I opened it with a with a sort of a saucy scene um, that, that either will um, – uh, depress somebody or make them um, want to read more. Um, if they're depressed, then it's only one page, and then they go straight on to the Helen and Malcolm side. So they, I get them in um, yeah. because of the different different kind of storytelling. Yeah. Um, so I, I I I use those techniques, those commercial um, uh, fiction writer techniques, to get as many readers into it. But as the book goes goes forward, I tighten the the the. the screws a little bit on the on the way the book is told i don't move away from from the the um fast page turning style but i do lift the the um the level of of big ideas that are um, brought into it and the um the emotional conflict um and and um the drama uh, gets gets more so it becomes kind of more literary as the book goes on but i, I do want to try and keep that pace 
It's interesting though, isn't it? Because like you writing a book, you can never really, like you, I, I, I can't imagine that you could write something and disassociate yourself from the market entirely. Like you, you, you bring that background with you everywhere you go, don't you? In the sense that you can't help but think, even I guess, as you're writing something, where it's going to go on the bookshop shelf. Like you, you, I, I'd imagine it would be impossible for you to disassociate those two things. Yeah, I mean, and 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 for writers who are not even even in, in the industry these days, it's hard not to have feedback um, continually via social media yeah. um, about where you where you sit and where they're placing you um, and their assumptions about about what you're doing. Um, so you get tons of feedback. So you you then your next book you you've got that in your head. Um, we you know I, I have I have all the the books out of knowledge uh, coming into it. I've got all you know the interviews with with successful authors that are coming into it. So I, I feel I feel now that I'd have to go on, onto a monastery or something um, to really to write one of those books that no one could read. They get put in spine outwards in the in the back of a of a of a bookshop um, because it, it it's very difficult for me to override all of these these great pieces of advice uh, and the information that I've been gathering over the years. But it'd be nice to try one day. I'd like to write a book that myself. I was no, but I was going to say that to you. Do you think in some ways though that that's actually restrictive in the sense that? You know, like you, you don't really know what you would ever write without all of that market knowledge, and what you wrote without that market knowledge might actually be quite extraordinary. Yeah, and that's why that's why in the in the book that the, the uh, main character Helen, um, or one of the main characters Helen, um, has written this great commercial novel. Even though she's written literary novels her whole career, great reviews, no money, she's written this great commercial novel which she hasn't handed in. She's taken the money, but she hasn't handed in. And in the time between taking the money, she's written two other versions of it. Um, they're very different novels, each, each of the versions. And the final one is this literary masterpiece. And, uh, and that is, that is sort of the way in which she describes, the way in which she describes how she wrote that final book, um, uh, is, is, you know, is me yearning to write that, that kind of book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it's in there. It's all down the page. I mean, my, my anxiety is around that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I'm going to study it just so that next time we meet, we can discuss. Now, you have a very big full-time job. You have a family. You have an extraordinary number of pets from what I can see on your bio. Um, you said that you wrote uh, The Girl on the Page on weekends between January and July. Is that a case of you prioritising? Is that a case of you going, well, I'm going to write from four till six on Sundays? Like, how do you... How do you fit that writing into your schedule? It's difficult. Um, you know, we've had some wonderful family dramas. This is um, uh, stepdaughter's uh, HSC year, which is oh, awesome. Um, awesome. And so, uh, um, so she was in year eleven last year when I was writing it. Uh, a lot of stress. Um, we've got a, I've got a teenage son out there in the world. Uh, so there's, you know, there's, there's family just doesn't go away. There's no way of, of doing that. So you've just got to be able to work around those. So you might lose two weekends in a row because of family dramas. Um, they might not pop up. Yeah. Um, what I, what I, my technique was, my, my wife likes a, a lion on Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. So my technique was if I got up early, and I'm an early riser, if I got up early on Saturday and Sunday, I could, I could kind of do writing time, which is very antisocial, um, before anyone really woke. Yeah. And that's, that's where I got a lot done. Um, because the rest of the time you get either there's, there's housework to do, there's um, people to see, there's um, dramas to, to be involved in. There's you know trying to have some time with with um, with the family in all of that. 
so so I could get it done early, then great. But sometimes I would I'd be on a run and my whole day would be gone and they wouldn't see me. And my wife would introduce herself at the end of the day, say, hello, I'm, I'm Townsend, I'm your wife. Um, it's lovely to know you. Have we met? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, it is, it's, it's an idiotic thing to do. I mean, this writing thing is, is mad. And you sit by yourself in this room and you have your little arguments with yourself and you write them down and, uh, um, and it's isolating. And, and because even when you're with someone in that mode, you're often not with them. No. Like your so brain's true. going off. Yeah, and it's it's so it's it's difficult to try and balance a relationship um, just with one person, but with the rest of the family, and then friends and family are outside of that. But I didn't see anyone, um, friends and family, for months. Yeah. Like for most of 2017, because there was then editing and stuff that happened afterwards, and um, I didn't see anyone. I was just completely gone. And do you are you working on anything at the moment? Like this book's obviously just recently come out, but are you are you sort of on to the next one? So are you now in antisocial mode again, so to speak? No, you 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 nailed it with that comment about being trapped in the in the marketing ideas and speak. So at the moment, I'm waiting to see what people how people react to this book. Right. So if this book has a bad reaction, or if this book doesn't do what I thought it was going to do, um, then there's no point in trying to reproduce. Or, or write in a similar manner again, right. um, okay. because what I want to do is I want to be able to get to a position where I where I can just write, where I don't have to do a day job and the like. And to do that, you have to sell copies. And to sell copies, you've got to, you've got to be able to hit a market and hit hit, uh, hit a certain readership and be able to give them what they want. But yeah, I also wanted to deliver what I wanted to deliver to them within that within that um, framework. So at the moment, I'm sort of sitting and watching. Okay. Um, to see what and happens. No, and, yeah, and see what happens. It feels. I mean, it feels awful talking like this. Um, and as I said, the old old John would would not be very happy with me. Um, <laughs> but to get a writing career going, where you can do the thing you love day in day out, um, you you kind of have to look at these kind of uh, abhorrent things <laughs> and and try to work out how to do it best. All right. So. Well, since we spoke, like in the last three or four years, what do you think is the kind of major, most major change, most major, there's some grammar for you, majorist, what is the majorist change that you have noticed in the publishing industry, like from your perspective as, a, as a, an author and a bookseller? Um, well, the, the book has come back. The physical thing is back, uh, which was a big change at that time. Yeah. So there was a great anxiety about e-books and, and the like. And that just didn't eventuate. And the, the younger audience is now embracing the book and embracing great for authors, embracing the more expensive version of the book, the hardcover. So there's a, there's a strange, there's a strange change there. Um, right now it's not that great for fiction though. Um, mm. I think, I think since 2016 when Trump got in power and then the whole Trump 2017, people uh, are starting to doubt information uh, and are trying to find, um, truth. And they're looking to books as the place where considered thought and truth resides. And so we're seeing this enormous increase in um, trade nonfiction, which is not academic yeah. fiction, uh, nonfiction. So easy to access, easy to understand, readable uh, nonfiction about history, about science, about finance with barefoot, um, about how to get on in life with Salalad no not giving a fuck. There's a whole range of books that have just killed it but that's also led people to a whole lot of diverse topics in the non-fiction realm and that is really the hot spot right now is 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 non-fiction and i think um 
I think there'll be a role of a benefit for, for literary fiction at the end of this because literary fiction is, is really hard to sell right now. Mm. Uh, and, and it's been, it's been difficult and, and the awards aren't doing it. So if you win the miles, you're not, you're not, you're not destined to sell a hundred thousand copies. You, you're, it doesn't work that way anymore. Mm. If you win the booker, it doesn't always turn out to, that you've sold, that you can retire. You know, um, these, uh, these are sort of troubling times for, for, for fiction and especially literary fiction at the moment. Um, crime is back, which is great. Mm. Uh, you know, you've, you've, you've probably interviewed Jane Harper who sort of turned around the, um, the, 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 the crime readership within Do Australia. Know, we haven't as yet. She's, she's on our list, but I don't think we've actually, no. But thanks for reminding me. I'm making a note. Yeah. Yep. Definitely get Jane Harper. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she's got a great story as well. So, um, yeah. So people like that who, who suddenly, get worldwide success and, and remind people, I used to like reading crime. And yeah. so crime sort of comes around again. Um, so there have been sort of those kind of shifts. That there's less of the romance being sold and, and more of the crime. The uplift thing right now in Frankfurt um, just, just happened. Frankfurt's book fair was just, just done. And the biggest biggest titles being sold were all uplit, you know, the, the um, Oliphant-style oh, book. Oh, yes, yes. Um, and so people want in their fiction to be reassured and to see hope yeah, uh, is, okay. is what they're saying. Um, so, you know, the, there are trends. They don't always work. You know, they don't always last. You know, erotic fiction one was 12 months at most. The uh, Gone Girl and Girl on the Train um, psychological thriller has sort of, um, uh, you know, it was a couple of years, and now it's sort of led on to, in the Australian market at least, um, the outback crime and um and, and homegrown home crime uh, is, is really quite strong at the moment. Interesting. But- so, as a, like, again, as an author and bookseller, you, you know, like you've obviously seen, you, you see what comes and goes in the market, you see, you know, all of the things, you see the trends, you see everything. Um, what have you taken on board from things that you've seen other authors doing that you think works in terms of helping to get the word out about their own books? Grassroots um, visits. So if you if you've got a publisher who, who backs you, um, uh, but doesn't have a great marketing budget, things you can do is that are, that can be arranged through the publisher, but then you can actually do uh, by yourself without any cost, or you can pay for it. Is is the the bookshop visits uh, organised ones, not just you popping in and, and rearranging the titles. Um, <laughs> But you know that you need to be at, uh, say, uh, at Dimix in, in Garendale at two o'clock um, to to sign the, the the small pile they've got there. Yeah. Uh, anything to get in there and have a fifteen minute chat with the bookseller. Yeah. Uh, that for me, when we looked at the great examples this year, two big ones stand out for me, and both HarperCollins, um, uh, Boy Swallows Universe. And um, the Holly Holly Ringlands um, book. Oh yes. Now Holly Holly went up and down the East Coast. Largely, uh, she did have a publisher at certain times, but largely by herself, and sold her book into booksellers right up and down the coast. And that did great things for her sales, enormous things. Wow. Um, yeah. And Scrublands, um, Alan Unwin looked at that model and went, "We're doing that." <laughs> and so, uh, so Chris Hammer has been all over Australia, or at least all the places he could reach. Um, and I, I'm not really sure what kind of arrangement they had, um, uh, and how much was paid by publisher and how much was author paid. Um, but I, I'd say most of it was arranged and organized by the publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those, that, those sort of things are absolutely brilliant. And, and getting to meet the public, the booksellers themselves, the ones on the ground, um, it does make them think, oh, I better give that a read if they haven't read it. Yeah. 
uh, and, and pull out the old um, um, proof to have a look at. Uh, but also sometimes if you're, if you're winning enough, um, in person, uh, they dislike you and think, well, I'm going to support you. Um, so, yeah. so you're not from Matt Riley. Winning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, yeah, you're right. It's really yeah. good. Matt Riley still, Matt Riley still visits those shops that supported him early in the day, early in the day. Yes, we often, his name comes up a lot actually with regards to book uh, club visits, book shop visits, you know, library talks, all of that kind of stuff. His name comes up regularly as someone who, who, a, did a lot of that when he first started out, but B, still does it, which I think is really interesting. All right, we are going to finish off our incredibly interesting um, interview today with uh, John Purcell's top three tips for writers. Well, um, one of them would be um, make sure before you um, even show it to anyone that you have um, reworked this thing realistically and not – um, not let yourself get away with yourself. Really, um, it's difficult. But if you can, if you can get outside of of yourself for a bit and and try to see this book from another person's position, just like you do with characters, um, and uh, then then you have a better chance because a book really needs to be looked at in that way. Um, the grassroots campaign uh, is is a must. Uh, whether you're um, whether you're a first time debut or you're uh, Matt Riley. Um, and also believe in what you do. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are just trying to um, to get somewhere um, in publishing and in writing, but they don't actually believe in the thing they're doing. Um, they're just using it as a way to get somewhere. And I think I think it shows um, Matt Riley believes in every book he does and it shows and that's why he's got the massive readership he has. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today, John. Best of luck with the book. I hope it goes gangbusters as your debut John Purcell novel. And um, we will look forward to seeing it on the bestseller list, clearly. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. There you go, John Purcell. I just think that it's so cool that he was Natasha Walker and now he's finally writing under his own name. This is very, very, very well, exciting. Well, it is really cool. And the, the thing is I, I loved the comment, like the conversation we had there where he was saying, um, you know, he'd done this thing. He had these books out there and they were selling so well and he wasn't able to tell anyone yeah. was absolutely killing him, you know, yeah. because when you've dreamed your whole life of being an author yes. and you're finally an author but you can't talk about it, um, mm. I can fully understand his, his um, you know, frustration with that. So I, I think he's, you know, really quite pleased with the fact that he can now, you know, be interviewed by us. Clearly we're the highlight of his week um, and, you know, talk about his books. Yeah. Um, one, uh, 
thing about um, not being able to, you know, um, admit that you're the writer behind a certain thing. Um, one situation of that is the subject of an upcoming film, which I cannot wait to see, um, called Can You Ever Forgive Me by Melissa McCarthy. Oh. Um, not by Melissa McCarthy, starring Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel, and who's an American author who became a literary forger. So she actually, Lee Israel, so Melissa McCarthy plays the lead character and it's uh, based on true events. And it's about um, Lee Israel who wrote some really good and popular books in her time, but then, you know, um, didn't wasn't as successful later in life. But she started getting money because she forged the letters of famous authors. And so she she authored these fake letters, right? And she right. was taking them to dealers and booksellers and people who collect such things and sell such things. And because she was inserting her wit and and you know her her writing uh, skills into those letters. They weren't just boring letter administrative letters or anything. These became collectible and popular. And of course, eventually it all becomes undone. But this movie is about that story. And mm. I absolutely cannot wait to mm. to see it because it looks really good. I just thought I'd throw that in. Just Thanks for that. There. Yeah, yeah. Little plug there. Excellent. Yeah, I love um I love watching movies about authors, don't you? I do, I do. Do you, I, I, do you remember? Like this, this might be something. This might be casting your mind back a, a step too far. But mm-hmm. like a hundred years ago, on one of the podcast episodes, you brought up a a, a group, uh, two authors, I think, who were going to. And I don't know if they ever did this because I never followed it up. They were authors, and they were going to um, film themselves um, writing a book on the internet. So they were going to like every day they were going to have themselves writing and it was going to be, it was going to be broadcast, you know, this thing. And you were so excited about it. <laughs> and I just remember going, I cannot think of anything more boring than watching someone <laughs> write a book because I just, because I thought about what that look. I mean, you know, on the inside of your head, writing a book is amazing because it's like, you know, there's so much going on. But from the outside, it's like you typing. Yeah, but it's not. How was this ever going to be riveting viewing? I just can't even imagine. but, you know, there are so many television shows and movies that are set around authors, about authors' lives, and it's never about the actual typing. It's about no, everything else I that goes that. on. Like the I, one, I understand I, that. Yeah, the one I'm watching at the moment on Stan, The the Truth About the Harry Kaber Affair, starring Patrick Dempsey, you know, Mick Dreamy. He's an yeah. author and it's all about – the mystery that unravels in his life, and he, throughout it, throughout it all, he's writing his his novel. So you know, is there's that something. Good? Do you like? Um, it? Well, the plot is certainly intriguing me, and I'm keeping on watching. Yes. Okay. All right. I'll have a look at it. But yeah, no. But just just this notion of broadcasting a live broadcast of someone <laughs> writing a book just made it's, me go because you were like, "No, don't you reckon that's amazing?" I'm like, "Oh my god, I could not give anything more." It's double. not about the typing; it's about the affairs that they have, and no, no, you I know, get like, that. but not in written, <laughs> not not from a real life broadcast. Here I am writing a book thing. <laughs> Seriously, well, you never know. And you also, I've know. had no affairs, so I feel like I'm letting the authorial <laughs> side down now. 
Okay, <laughs> there you go. That might be um, too much information, but anyway, whatever. Let's move on. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter. And you, Val, where do we yep. find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, um, at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and also at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, make sure you join both of us in the podcast community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free and we'd love to have you in there. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.